Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Warren coming to you live from the Dream State Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out west in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Wednesday, Earth Day, and also a big day in our family as we have three, not one, not two, but three family members with a birthday today. My wife, my dad, and my brother-in-law uh, all have birthdays today, and so happy birthday to all three of them. It's a, Like I said, it's a big day in our house. Um, coming up here in just a minute after the break, we had a, a long, uh, a better part of an hour uh, conversation, a Zoom interview yesterday with a friend of the show, Jack Gidney, talking about the landscape of the DA and, and youth soccer and youth development. And we look forward to bringing that to you here in just a minute, right after the break. But before uh, we get to that interview, I just wanted to uh, let you know that if you have not taken the time to go to ductickbrand.com and place an order, you should do that today. Ductic brand.com and use the promo code DW show. You'll get 10% off of that order. It's, it's worth it. Uh, I was, I was in my son's room last night and he had some of the ductic brand. Um, they look like little postcards, uh, index cards that have the field and on them. And he, he, he uses them uh, to, to, track games and, and to draw plays out on and all it, they're great resources that they have check them out at ductickbrand.com use promo code dw show and you'll get 10 percent off of your order coming up right after the break is our uh, zoom interview we did yesterday with jack gidney we'll be right back after this
All right. Well, Jack, welcome into the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. First time uh, doing the, the Zoom interview. Uh, normally, it's a bunch of phone interviews, but uh, we, uh, we've been working through a, a new set and setup and, and have been doing some Zoom interviews for the show. And I appreciate you taking some time to, to stop in and join us. I uh, wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit on the, the recent news with U.S. soccer. There's a lot of recent news, but uh, one of the big ones, uh, big topics over the last probably week to two weeks has been the, the Development Academy and the termination of the Development Academy. Before we go there, I, I just want to kind of get your thoughts. Um, you know, you grew up in the U.K., uh, but you spent a, a lot of time here in America um, your thoughts on the idea of the word academy uh, as it relates to American soccer versus the way it's thought of around the world? Um, yeah, I, it's it's interesting because it, the use of the words are, are thrown around like nobody's business. You can you can assume the word to anything without actually having any sort of connotations or or actual anything that validates how it is. For me, an academy is a professional organization um, whose job it is to create as many professionals as possible. Um, unfortunately, in the US, that's not possible um, for a whole bunch of political reasons. Namely, the NCAA doesn't really make it possible for the professional organizations to fully commit to everything that is required when you're an academy player in, in Europe or in the rest of the world. Um, they're not allowed to provide certain things because it, it would render a player academically, uh, yeah, it would render them ineligible for their NCAA. Um, so, so you get a conflict of interests. Um, the Development Academy, it was always a strange conception because you had essentially amateur grassroots organizations competing for players and in the same league with the same status as the professional organizations. And nowhere else in the world would that be the case. The professional organization is always the top of the tree. Unfortunately, the system of the United States is that there is no tree. There are conflicting leagues um, there's a lot of money involved, which now becomes a massive point of interest. Um, and so club soccer in general has become massively corporate. Um, it's become about uh, fields and, and status and acquiring of clubs and acquiring of paying players. Um, and we've totally lost value and lost sight of what we're looking for, which is... One, the development of young people, um, and that is often overlooked. Um, but the reality of, of, of any sport at the youth development is only a tiny percent are ever going to make it. So the impact that you leave on the, on the remainder, um, how they go out into life and how they exhibit emotional control, how they react to circumstances, we're, we're very influential in that learning process. And so that has, that's gone completely out the window. And then the actual teaching of the game and improvement of the game has gone completely out the window because it's, it's the Wild West. Um, you look at the ECNL and the DA competing for over two, two years now, three years now on the girls' side, chaos. 
You have the DA and ECNL coming in, granting clubs statuses, not granting club statuses. Certain clubs now lose players, lose income. Coaches lose income within a week because they lose a team because four or five players go, they can't replace them because they're filtered up. People leave for the status. They'd rather join the seventh place team at a club with status rather than join your first team, regardless of coach. Um, and there's nothing done to earn that. It's just granted and that's it. So small clubs who do good work have been killed off. And now all the players filter up and they filter up into a bigger club. And now the DA pulls a status away and we've created this system where there's, there's a bitterness towards them because they've caused so many smaller clubs so much grief. So now nobody's sorry for them. And they shouldn't be because we've created this system where we're all competing against one another. There's no centralized focal point. The, the federation has never taken control of what's going on out here. Everyone's competing with everyone. And that is not conducive to producing players. It's not producive to the game because we're at constant war with each other. It, it, it's, it's complete chaos. Youth, youth soccer is, is absolute chaos. So from the structural side, um, you know, looking at the, the geographic size, the population size, where the population densities are located, et cetera. Um, how, how important is it for the Federation, the United States Soccer Federation, which is the national governing body for the sport, how important is it for them to try to do a better job uh, in the future at administration, regionalization, uh, a focus on localization, and maybe, you know, getting to a place where status, as you talked about, isn't granted but earned, where, um, you know, you could have six, eight, 10, 12 clubs in an area competing rather than it being, you know, two giant super clubs that feel like they have to go around and merge with every other club just to have enough, you know, status to be able to apply to be in some, you know, quote unquote elite league. Yeah. That, the problem is this, the U S Federation really needs to take control of everything and create a structure and a flow of, of how it works with restrictions. I don't mind the super club. I mean, I'm here in Southern California and I work at a club and beach is in our backyard. Now, I have no qualms with Beach because they do a good job. Their academy teams are very good. They have a whole bunch of national team players, some of whom have been at our club as youngsters and moved on. And they should move on because they should play with better players. What's unfortunate is what happens underneath. And that is, for a club like Beach, they're allowed to have a, a, a limitless amount of teams. I get it. That's the system we're in. It... But there's no flow chart. There's no, well, if U.S. Soccer Federation, then they then coordinate with the states. The states then coordinate with their professional organizations. Underneath those professional organizations, there are respected clubs that show a track record of producing good stuff, playing good stuff, doing the right things. Now, if those clubs then were limited to the amount of teams they could have, let's say one per age group, two per age group, but then they, had, they were responsible for the next layer down, down the ladder of, okay, these are your seven to eight feeder clubs. Let's 
talking Southern California, where you get seven or eight clubs within 15 miles. And those you were responsible for pulling players solely from those clubs. It would stop the continual movement of kids left, right, and center every season, changing clubs. It would stop the poaching. It would stop the competition of, of trying to sell out somebody down the road because you're competing for the same player. If everybody had something that they were responsible for, at the moment it's not. It's, it's all over the place because there is no system. There's no structure. It's leagues competing with leagues. Massive clubs competing with massive clubs, small clubs doing everything they can to survive year on year, continually filtering from the bottom, pulling players out of recreational soccer to fill numbers, to fill teams. It's, it's a mess. It's a complete mess. So how, how in, in, in kind of what you're talking about, how would a club uh, in that model, um, how would they reach that status of – having feeder clubs to them uh if i mean i i understand that if like uh you know thinking through you know la you've got you know lafc la galaxy the the two mls uh, academies uh there in, in in la metro area uh in orange county i understand that status for them because that you know they're saying okay we're professional we're gonna have a professional academy and we're gonna pull from x you know list of clubs for each of us etc but, you know, those, those two academies, you know, the way I look at it, they need um, local clubs to play regularly. They shouldn't be getting on an airplane at 14 years old to have to fly to, you know, Dallas, Texas regularly. Now, I get comp competitions, but I'm talking about regular, you know, play. So if they're going to play teams locally, uh, who gets to qualify as that status to play at that level? And then what – what in in the way you're talking about how how do they then get a feeder pattern or a feeder system well well this is the issue i thought the tier da that, that that was the initial suggestion i thought that was a good idea i thought that's the way it should work a professional organization should be at the top of the tree you you, you can't argue that that's the way it is across the world the professional clubs sit at the top now as for tiering and who moves where, that's when the U.S. has to get involved and set the guidelines. Unfortunately, they don't. So as for playing locally, I understand it at the, at the lower ages. They should have to play locally. But at those ages, the tiers don't matter as much. The younger you are, the less the tiers matter because, you know, you get five and six-year-olds and five and six-year-olds. Um, obviously, the higher you go and, and the separation of ability becomes a, a bigger gap. Um, I disagree slightly with the sentiment that 15 and 16 year olds at professional clubs shouldn't be flying to Dallas. I disagree slightly on that is because if at 15 and 16 years old, if, if US soccer are genuinely in the business of having professional clubs produce professional players, that is what they should be doing. However, there are some things that come with that which aren't possible. We can't compensate those kids for that. We can't contract them so that if they do, if they are good enough and we are doing a good enough job and they do get interest from abroad and they choose to go abroad, we're then not financially compensated for that. So there's a whole caveat of things in the structure and again in the competing entities of US soccer, of NCAA, of VCNL, of DA, of this, of that, of X, Y, and Z, of MPL and every league and every set of acronyms you can put together. They're not all in line with one another. 
And so whatever one entity is trying to do, we're continually taking the legs under the bottom. This is why people talk about people slipping through the net. Well, we don't even have a net. We have a series of very small nets. We don't have one where we can filter it all in. So of course people are going to be missed. Of course they're going to be missed. But having a professional entity where the kids can come in and, and be compensated and treated like professional athletes, which is the only way you should be going into an academy, a, a professional club's academy, that, that, that's the only way this is going to happen. But that cannot happen because we don't have clubs. We have franchises. We have a single entity. There's no incentive for them to do it. And the rules and regulations don't allow them to. So at the moment, everybody's kind of left to do their own, their own thing. Couldn't you make the argument, though, that in, in, in the context of this whole aspect of the structure and the system, that we just don't have enough professional clubs either? Yes. Yeah, of course you can. Um, I mean, it, at the moment, it's what do you deem as a professional club because there are USL clubs doing really, really well. Um, structuring their organizations really well, doing good work on the youth side, doing good work with their first team and, and their attendance and their turnover and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, do they get classed as a professional club or is MLS only classed as a professional club? Again, this goes back to the same as the youth side. You have two competing leagues. You don't have any, okay, this is the top, this is the second one, this is the next one, and it filters up. And so because you don't have that, it's like you have six different leagues kind of operating at between 60 to 80%, but we never filter up to one that operates at 100%. So with the recent announcement of the termination of the DA, that was really the, the only time that U.S. soccer had proactively entered the youth space in quite a while. Um, their last attempt uh, I believe was the late 80s, early 90s, when the, uh, the lawsuit uh, from, I believe it was AYSO, uh, brought against the Federation, because at the time, U.S. Youth Soccer was the only youth sanctioning organization. They were the de facto federation, basically, for youth soccer. Uh, and that they were the only ones that kind of sanctioned youth soccer at the time. And AYSO's suit basically, um, put U.S. soccer in a position to uh, either absorb U.S. youth soccer and it, in, in it become one, you know, merged 501c3 nonprofit organization rather than two separate ones as it exists today. Or the government basically said you have to then uh, sanction AYSO as a sanctioning organization, not just a programming organization that offers, you know, leagues and programs that you've got to also let them sanction kids. Uh, U.S. youth soccer at the time chose not to merge with the federation, and and then we ended up with this alphabet soup of, soup of, of sanctioning organizations: U.S. Club, U.S. Youth, AYSO, etc. They come into the youth space back in 2007 with the with the Boys Development Academy, and uh, you know at the time to a lot of fanfare, like okay, hey, maybe the federation is really wanting to start to take this serious, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I make the argument that U.S. soccer's biggest uh, mistake was that they didn't go far enough. Um, the, the, the ultimate screw-up here was that they didn't 
nationally organized the entire system of youth soccer, brought everyone into the development academy that wanted to pay, you know, uh, play in the so-called travel soccer, club soccer uh, context, and have the tiers, as you mentioned. I prefer for those tiers to be access, you know, access through sporting merit. Um, and, and obviously you could have some other qualifications and, and, you know, uh, aspects of classification, right. You know, with the professionalization versus, uh, other aspects of, of some of the, the amateur, uh, organizations, but I contend that they just didn't go far enough. They did, they didn't spread the net wider, bigger, multi-tiered and go all in to me. That's the only way we're going to end the chaos of, the alphabet soup of leagues and, and sanctioning organizations. I, I just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, uh, centralizing it and structuring it is the only way we're going to, we're going to end the chaos of it all. Unfortunately, I don't believe that we will ever get to that. Um, the reason I don't believe we will ever get to that is, is I believe that egos, um, which there are hundreds of in the sport, thousands of them. And that's why we're in it. Um, we have competitive edges of people that drive us to sport and, and force us to come back into the game after we've played. Because of the system that we've created at the moment, I don't believe that people's egos and drive and desires will allow them to sacrifice perhaps individual growth to centrally structure. It, it, we've created a, this massively overly competitive almost capitalist environment around youth soccer of pulling in the money, pulling in the teams, pulling in the finances. I mean, these clubs are turning over millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. It's absolutely insane. I come from somewhere where you pay your 25 pound subs a year and you're on the team. It's, it's, it's madness. I don't believe that those egos will allow them to set back perhaps opportunity for individual growth as a business or as an organization for what is essentially the greater good or the actual true essence of the game and youth soccer. Well, let me ask you this. This is something I, I talked about uh, on the show earlier today um, was, was this idea of, um, you know, the, the quote unquote elite uh, American youth soccer experience and elite is, is uh, generally your, your bank account. Um, and, and, and there's not a direct correlation to, you know, quality, talent, player, et cetera. Um, why couldn't the, the Federation, as well as these clubs who, you know, are operating on, you know, what is this, in my view, completely, you know, out of whack, uh, pay to play culture, as you mentioned, you join a club around the world, you pay your dues. It's just that your dues are membership dues. They're not just they're Whereas here in, in America, most of the, the, the payments you make are programming dues, right? You're, you're not, you're not buying a, um, a stock certificate in the club. You're not getting an ownership share for dropping three grand or five grand a year. You're, you're basically paying for, your child to play from August to May or August to November, right? You're, play, you're paying yeah. a programming fee 
not a not a stock certificate, not an ownership position, not a membership fee. Rarely do you uh, even even for the the lower feed uh, clubs or recreational programs that might be fifty bucks or a hundred bucks or one hundred and fifty bucks a season. Um, are you even getting a say? You're not even a member of of that organization to even have a vote on anything. Um, you know, in, 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 in a lot of cases. So why couldn't we look at an American um, youth soccer landscape? I get the egos and I understand the conflicts of interest and they're large and we, we talk about them regularly on the show. But I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of marry the two aspects, you know, that hunger, desire, that you know kind of uh, free market like i'm I, i'm willing to back my kid for you know 1500 bucks a year or 10,000 bucks a year or whatever why couldn't that that funding still go to the club but it, instead of it being tied to programming it's tied to membership or it's tied to investment in the club and now all of a sudden it becomes a almost like a a supercharged from a fee perspective, supercharged FC Barcelona style, you know, membership thing. It's like, Hey, you're, you're buying an ownership share or a membership share. Here's your annual dues. It's three grand or it's 1500 grand, but you, you're, you're, you're an official member. We're building a, a club. Um, and not just organization. Well, eventually it, it could become that if there was enough capital and enough, you know, enough investment, enough support. I don't see why it couldn't have or shouldn't have that opportunity. Uh, I, the one thing I've talked to people, you know, within the Federation that work at the Federation about uh, the, the one aspect of the professional league standards that I personally find the most difficult to accept is the ownership structure requirement uh, of the PLS more than any other aspect. The other ones, uh, you know, uh, I would tweak here or there, but that the ownership perspective to me is completely egregious in that you, you are telling a company or an organization, a club that at the highest level, your primary owner has to own, you know, at least I think it's 30 or 35% of the club. And they have to be worth by themselves um, $40 million uh, outside of their personal residence and ownership stake in the club. And the, and the ownership collective has to be worth $70 million. And even, you know, a few days ago, I was talking to someone within the, the federation about this, this idea. And I said, what if there were, you know, 10 guys worth 10 or $15 million apiece? And they collectively said, hey, we'd like to start a pro club. They have $150 million collective net worth. Why would they not be allowed to start a club that could compete in the first division? That's just, uh, you, you can't, you could never have an FC Barcelona without a waiver from the Federation. You can never have Bayern Munich without a waiver from the Federation. You're not going to have that here anyway. You're not going to have that here anyway. That, that, that's gone. That's, that was gone when the MLS was founded and the way they structured it. It's just, it's gone. That dream of having that elite super club in the United States is gone. However, could you have dominant clubs in the country 
that are known for talent, that are known as a worldwide good club. And I'm talking, you talk about Argentina, for example, Boca Juniors, River Plate, the two that stand out. Colossal world clubs. However, they know that if they've got a top talent, it's leaving. Right, they sell. They are, they are okay with it. Right. Because the revenue generated from somebody leaving continues to fund the club going forward, allows them to continue to be dominant on their own domestic stage and continental stage, and allows them to continue to produce even more. Santos in Brazil. Now, you could have that in the United States. That could happen. But that doesn't seem to be the MO. It's not, it's not the agenda. It, 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 it's not what we're pushing towards. Is that achievable in your mind within uh, the current uh, professional context? Major League Soccer, the USL Championship, USL League One, or NISA. Is, is that possible in any of those scenarios? Uh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's more possible with the closing of the development academy and MLS opening its own gaming circuit for the MLS teams. I'm talking, we're talking just on the men's side here. Right. I think that's become more possible now because your best players should play with the professional organizations. I know that sucks for teams like the Pariadores and Real SoCal and I'm just talking California, ones who have good boys academies, very good, and have produced national team players. That I know that sucks to hear, but it's not a preference. But you look anywhere else in the world, the best players play for the professional organizations. That's the way it should be. So the closing of the development academy for that on the boys' side, I think it's more possible now. You look at somewhere like LA Galaxy or LAFC and how much talent there is in, in Southern California. If you could take the, the absolute creme de la creme, the top of the top, top 1%, and put them in those two, put them together in those two clubs, could they produce the top talent in Salomon? Yes, all things considered. Because now, if they don't, if they don't over the next five years, they have some questions to answer. The directors have questions to answer. The coaches have questions to answer. You have access to the absolute top potential talent in the biggest, one of the biggest hotbeds of, of soccer in, in the country, and you've produced zero players for the first team. We've had zero of our players leave for European um, teams. We've had only a small number get in the national team. That would produce an environment where people are held accountable. So... Has an MLS in Southern California already had that set up? I mean, not, not necessarily because if I'm a national team player and I live down in Orange County, depending on my family situation, depending on X, Y, and Z, do I really need to drive up the 405 to train at the Galaxy when there's a team 10 minutes from my house that has the same status. We play in the same league. And five of us are all good enough to play for the Galaxy. Five of us are the top players, but we all live around here. 
Why do all five of us need to drive up there when we can be here and do the same thing? So to my point, why can't that club just, just have a, a higher status? Why can't they build themselves? <laughs> because, the, because that's one team. What if there are the seven teams are dreadful? Well, that's true. You, ca- you can't take it as it is. I mean, even if, you go, even if you go to Europe and you look at their academy teams, not all of them are great. Right. They no, have that years. Yeah. This is why, you know, in England they create, created the um, EPP. You know, and, and what teams have what tiered status based on the EPP and it's continually reviewed. It, it's more than about what the teams are doing on the pitch and what players they have. It's about the structure, the infrastructure behind them, the coaching behind it, the results over the last three years outside of the wins and losses. But again, we don't have that here. Now, if the Galaxy, for example, had, was assigned eight of those other DA clubs that had been pushed down, and they said, look, your continual talent pool is coming from them. And then that, that set of clubs had a set of local clubs within them that they were responsible for the survival and it was their player pool and it all flowed up. People would be held more accountable and look after what comes behind. At the moment here, nothing looks after what comes behind. I know at Fram as a community club, we've had, I mean, certainly on the girls' side, which I was responsible for for a while and still working, the amount of players that have come through us at some point as a very young child and moved on to much bigger programs and been massively successful and big names and won big things for bigger programs is it's an extensive list. Now, do those clubs that have taken from us care? No, they're not, they don't care. If our pipeline dries up, they don't care because there's no responsibility. There's no accountability. Whereas if there was some sort of accountability and stream of look, this is where we get our players from, mostly. We have to make sure that club's okay. There would be some coordination, but there's no coordination. There's no coordination between clubs, no coordination between leagues, no coordination between organizations. It, it's the Wild West. Well, you, you mentioned that, that MLS is looking at their own academy league. They, they announced those plans. Um, you know, shortly after the, the official announcement from the Federation that uh, the DA was officially terminated, they come out with a press release and basically saying, we're, we're going to restart the DA uh, under the MLS banner rather than the U.S. soccer banner. For some of us, um, <laughs> that's just changing out letters. It, was, it never really changed, but, you know, we'll see. Um, but in, in terms of the the landscape the well, aftermath that's all, we're, that's all we're doing now you look at the ecnl the day of the da announcement all of the da teams moved to the ecnl right a large chunk of them a large just, chunk of them it just changed the letters right so is different exactly so you brought up major league soccer and in in their attempt to do some type of you know professionalized academy system for their academies. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far, at least from the USL and their talk about the USL academies and, and, and do those belong in the same conversation of MLS and their academies or should those 
be stratified or, or are you thinking MLS would be like a uh, tier I'm, one I'm, USL tier two and then everybody else tier three? Like, you know, what, what are you thinking? Well, well, again, this goes back to my point at the beginning of we don't actually know what the structure is and we won't. We'll never know because there will never be one. There's too many egos and too much. The, wa- the water's out the tap now. You can't put it back in. Right. If you, if you were to come in and say, okay, all our MLS academies are at the top, well, the USL would say, well, what, hold on a minute. Why, why are we the second ones? Right? Because they're both going to claim their professional leagues in the United States. There are teams in the USL who could easily compete in the MLS, but they're not selected, even if they have got the $400 million that they need. Right. Then again, somebody like Beckham comes in with no team, no nothing, no background, boom, gets the status, can't get it going for years. Now all of a sudden, boom, they're in the league. But there are teams in USL and other leagues who are running effectively. So again, there's, there's no structure. There never has been. It's everybody competing with everybody else. And this goes even further. This goes down the ladder because as a coach in a competitive area, there's no coaching community. There's no wanting to see people do well. There's no real true sharing of ideas. Certainly not within your local areas because it's a dog-eat-dog. You're constantly competing for players. And the reason you're constantly competing for players is because those players pay the fees. And because they pay the fees, they pay our wage. This is how we survive as a career coach. This is how you live. Right. So if, if I lose, I had a 2002 group, I lost nine of them to the ECNL at the end of one season. A club 12 miles from us was granted ECNL. So overnight, I lost nine players to one team. Now, you would argue that's still my team. But... It's not anymore. So I have to go out and find nine players. Now, as a coach in the area, you have to get those players in because if I don't replace those nine players, I lose my team. I lose a third of my income. Boom, like that. All because status was granted to somebody 12 miles down the street. So because of that, you have to be a little bit ruthless. You have to self-promote. So now it becomes this ego-driven thing where when somebody... In a, in a similar age group or somebody in the same age group at a club near me does well, you kind of go like, because you know it's now going to be harder for you and your, to retain your players, to retain your wage. So now as a coaching community, we're at each other's throats all the time because you have to be. So then that transpires further to the clubs. Clubs can't ha- help other clubs because you're constantly doing the same thing because of the money aspect. And then it eventually goes all the way up the ladder, all the way up the ladder. And it's, to be honest, it's even going further down now where parents and kids are looking at other parents and kids doing well and it's like, ugh. So this is what we've created here. Right. We're not in it for the game. We're in it to compete with somebody down the street. There's no common goal. There's no centralized um, centralized theme of pushing the players and doing what's right that, that's gone out the window and and your only hope of seeing that change in your view is that the federation actually steps in and governs and in administers 
I don't think it's possible. The reason I don't think it's possible is because there are far too many conflicting entities that have far too much say and, and generate far too much money. The MLS, you would have to do away more or less with the MLS or open the system. Um, and we're talking, you know, the promotion and relegation. But the problem with that is if I'm an owner who's come in and I've paid $400 million to get into that league, I'm not going to want you to open it to allow somebody who started with $0 and grew naturally to come in, right? So that, that, I just don't see that happening. Then if you get into the youth side, you've then got to go up against the NCAA. There's no way the NCAA are going to cave. Not to, allow, not to allow us to pay soccer players because now you've got to open it up to pay everybody else. Well, well, I mean, the NCAA may be living in a different world pretty soon with yeah, some maybe, of the, the legal challenges, maybe, maybe, maybe. right? But, Which but, would be good. These, these are two massive entities sure. that you have to get into to buy into what we're trying to do. Right. I just don't see it happening. I think it's too, we're too far down the line. Having said that, are they doing a terrible job? No, they're not doing a terrible job. As a business, the MLS is brilliant. As a business, it's very good. These leagues are good businesses. They do good stuff. Players do come out of them. The question really is, how random or how by chance or coincidence is the success they're having from a soccer perspective however minimal it may be, and what percentage of their potential are they operating at? Yeah, I think, I think that's the – yeah, and I, I, that's the, that to me is the big, biggest point here. Uh, when you talk – you know, I sat at the, uh, in the, the board meeting at the, the U.S. Soccer AGM in Nashville back in February, and to hear uh, Sunil Galati just self-aggrandize, blow smoke up his own butt as well as Don Garber in the board meeting about all that, that Major League Soccer has done over the last 25 years. And Sunil was on the payroll of MLS up until 23, 2014, somewhere, you know, 2013, 2014, even while serving as president of U.S. Soccer, something that few people ever talk about, uh, the conflict of interest there. But um, – to hear them talk about themselves, they, they view it from the perspective of look at what was here before us and look at and judge us on what we've done so far. I don't view it that way. I view the country as what is our potential and how much of our potential have we realized? Those are two different questions. The, the first, to me, is, a, is an easier way for you to get to a place where you're comfortable and you're willing to pat yourself on the back that I did a good job. The second is a, is a question to me that asks more questions than you'll ever be able to answer, but it's, a, it, it's, it's a, a different mentality that drives the best to continue to be the best. You know, the, 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 the Last Dance documentary that came out uh, first two episodes Sunday night about MJ and the Bulls in the 90s, you can see that competitive edge ooze out of MJ, but other players and Phil Jackson as well. Um, and, and, you know, when you, when you look at American soccer, that's not something you ever really talk about in, in the context of where we are. We, you don't, 
you don't talk about excellence and, and this quest for realizing our potential and really capitalizing on, you know, what we could be. And, 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 and in this conversation so far, we've, we've done very little uh, to discuss, you know, the women's side of the Development Academy and this whole context of women's soccer, the NWSL, the, the women's national team is the only thing in American soccer that you can say has been, you know, global standard setting uh, in, in the way that they have uh, conducted themselves on and off the field. Um, you know, they are beasts. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. I mean that in a, in a sporting sense, they are, they're incredibly competitive and, and, you know, and set the benchmark and they don't care who's coming for them. Um, we don't they're, see they're, they're tackling their own federation. Right. I, I agree. But, but what I'm saying is on the women's side, in this whole development academy, ECNL situation, we've been talking a lot about MLS and, and the development academy and what could change and what would have to change. On the women's side of the game where you've only got nine, maybe eventually yeah. to be ten NWSL outlets, what do we got to do to, to build out some infrastructure and change the interest slash investment level that's going into the women's game uh, here in America? Well, I mean, that's massively loaded that because the, the, the revenue generated by the other leagues to be in it is, is, is colossal. Uh, I mean, there are lots of things that I don't think are taken seriously enough. I coached, I coached in the WPSL for a couple of years, which is where the collegiate players play in the summer. Um, and then, you know, some perhaps older players who have professional jobs and still want to play in the summer. Um, that league for me was never taken seriously enough. There's no funding. The WPSL organize it very well. It's structured very well. They're great people to deal with, but generally as a league, it was not, it was like having an adult club team. So things like that aren't taken very seriously and not filtered in. And again, we get into structure and pyramids. Now, the NWSL has a problem because they don't have enough pro teams. That, that's a real issue. But again, if there was a structure in place, for me, the state organizations should be next underneath the National Federation. The state organizations should have an idea of what's going on and be brought into the situation. And it, and it gradually filters out and the tree gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it spires out. It doesn't happen. And that should be, be for both genders. But it, it, it's not, it's never going to be the way. It's not going to be the way because we're, at, we're too far down the line at competition with one another to join in. Now, for your point about US soccer, I agree with you. I agree with you. But it's like sailing the Titanic in that, yeah, great job. We've got from here to here. But in two miles, we might hit an iceberg if we're not careful. So can we look at what's coming in front of us as opposed to where we've got to now? In my opinion, there are some massive issues. The youth national teams haven't done great. The men's team didn't qualify for the World Cup. The women's team, as successful as it is, was rolled around the country as a circus act to generate the money that they won't pay, and they're now at, dagger, at loggerheads with the National Federation. They've just folded their youth league. We are not at a good point in US soccer. And what frustrates everyone is nobody comes out and says, we've got some problems. This needs to happen. 
as an Englishman, when we didn't beat Croatia and didn't qualify for the Euros, the first thing the FA did was come out and say, we have problems. Everywhere else in the world, when their national teams haven't been successful, they come straight out and say, we're going to sort it. Here, it's spun as, we're going to do something else. I know, we're going to do something else. And then you see one guy who uh, didn't do a good job, move to a different part of the organization and given a different title. And so it builds this frustration around everyone. And again, going back to wanting us to be at each other's throats. Because there's no accountability. There's no responsibility. There's no what we're all doing here. We're all trying to do the same. It's not possible. It's not possible. So to, to kind of wrap this up, what, when you look at the American soccer ecosystem and the landscape and knowing what you know about the Federation, um, about the current context and the aftermath of the DA, uh, what, um, what are some possibilities, some opportunities for change or to fix or to it maybe even in a local context to move things in a different direction than, than the chaos and the, you know, dysfunction that we see right now. Uh, for me, I think we have to work from the top down now because of the situation we've created. We have to work from the top down, the lower, the grassroots stuff and your local clubs and all that kind of stuff. That's going to be chaos for some time. It will continue to be chaos. There's money involved at a recreational level, essentially. So, there will always be a massive conflict of interest. So if I'm the national organization, I have to start at the top. So my starting at the top, I start with what we currently have. That is a coordination of the MLS clubs and the NWSL clubs in conjunction with the state organizations to create the first couple of levels of, of the pyramid. You're responsible for updating us on what's going on here. If we have some sort of state competitions, I know ODP, but we're talking about a genuine state competition or state-run national team. National team and talent scouting should come through that. Right. So, so it should come through your, your people who are on the ground every day within your state organization. That's the way it should go. They should be working with their professional organizations. Now, within those professional organizations where the gaps are, where the gaps are, we have a responsibility to place the correct organization in place as a placeholder. Mainly because we, if, if in certain areas where they just don't have a professional team, you have to have something there, otherwise we lose those. Now, you would hope that the agreement would be, should a professional club come into that geographic location, they assume that organization as part of its own and it's running on the youth side. Again, that's really way down the line, really way down the line. But we have to start at the top. Let's get the MLS league running. Let's get an NWSL league running. But that's not going to happen. I think we're now relying on the ECNL. But I don't mind that so much because that's what we were doing before. And the ECNL did a really great job. They did a really great job. As much as they didn't give my club status and they gave it to somebody 12 12 miles down the road. They did a good job. You can't argue that. They were doing good stuff. Why, why with the ECNL, why would you not allow more clubs into the league? Well, you get... Why, 
why do you, why do you do, I'm asking this as a general question. Why do you not, you know, why is it arbitrary? Why is it, you know, uh, in some cases unearned, you just were granted status versus someone else rather than any other, uh, you know, metric of development or well, well, anything else. Problem with it. I do believe that there should be some sort of filtering of that. I do believe that some should have that status, so you filter in, right? My problem is... But how do you earn that status? Well, here's my issue. My issue is you take uh, uh, an ECNL powerhouse in your geographic area. They're doing good stuff, but they're taking the players from smaller clubs or they recruit from their local area. Fine. It's the way it is. That's the way soccer works. It's the way most sports work. It, it filters up. The problem becomes that organization is allowed to then operate at what the next level down is. So me at a club where we don't have any status, we just go ahead and do what we do. That's no problem. If I'm going to continue to lose players moving up, fine. The best should be playing with the best and so on and so forth. But the issue is that the, the club that I've lost my players to they're allowed clubs and teams at my level, at, but I can lose my players to them, but I can't really take back from them because they push it down to their own teams at my level. So they get both and I get one. Now, if they didn't have a youth club underneath it, no problem. There's more players in the pool. I'll go ahead and pull more players and do more work. My, my real issue is that they're allowed to grow to as big as they would like to be, whilst the rest of us are held ceiling. Now, if they were restricted as you're allowed an ECNL team and an ECNL regional league team, and that's it, no sweat. Let everybody else underneath you do it. I, I, I get that's what it is. But if you're going to have an ECNL and an ECNL regional league team, and then the players you don't want, you kick them down to your fifth team, but you're taking my top 2% of players, that's a problem for me. Because they have a cast-off pile, and I'm losing what we produce. It doesn't. It's not cyclical. Right. It doesn't come back to you. It so, come back. so, so where where should that change in your mind come from? Is that a policy uh, from a from a federation that just says, it "Hey, should it should be," you know, that hey, if you're operating, you can only operate in X number of teams. Uh, at that's what that's what the coast soccer league over here in southern california used to be it used to be like that gotcha. you could have three teams in an age group and that's why they founded the scdsl which allowed them to go out and have as many teams in an age group as as they wanted and then they just and, the, and then and then the thing caught fire and away here we go now again i'm not critical of these organizations i get why they did it certainly from a business perspective and the, the some of them do really good work. But the problem is it's killed smaller clubs. It's created this, this bitter, twisted, overly competitive environment where the, the education of children from a soccer perspective and, as a, and from a, a, a mental and growth and maturity perspective is now the very, very, very last thing on the priority list. It's well, I, I think the culture 
It, it's it's reflect. You you said something a few minutes ago, and this word came to my mind when you're talking about. You know, I think MLS has done some good things. I think the problem is is it's it's a a um, a parasite type of relationship, a predatory type of relationship. Like my good comes at the expense of you. Whereas um, what you're talking about in terms of if you, if you're going to be given a status, yes, you may pull from me, right? So there's a little bit of the predatory aspect where you've got a better status than I have. And, and so therefore my best player may leave and go to you, but there's a little bit of symbiosis there as well in that, okay, I filled my, you know, 18-man roster and I'm full. So player 19, hey, man, I'm sorry, but we're full. And then they've got to go somewhere. And they, so that symbiote, you know, it may not, that player may not be at the level of the player you lost, but they may be back in your, you know, not back in your club, but they, someone may be coming to your club uh, yeah. where it's not a completely – uh, leeching off and yeah. but, but, in, but we get into ego because those clubs will say well, well we create other teams so that we can do it okay if you're gonna do it why don't you do it before? well i i understand i understand that but i'm saying like from a from an ecosystem perspective yeah, yeah, and the Utah—that's the way it should work. You know, like it should be that you know, like right now, maybe soccer gets to have, have the pick of the litter in in conversation. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. But. I think it should be that way. Yeah, I, I, I disagree because I don't think they're they've got corporate subsidies since 2002 and, and lived off of that corporate subsidy for the federation uh, for, for nearly 20 years to get to this level. It's not like they, they popped down the money and did it themselves. They they work behind the scenes uh, to leech off the federation, then leech off of everyone else. Oh, well, I don't have as much sympathy. When I, say, when I say that they should have it, I say they should have it because in the professional game, certainly not on the minute. And on that, I agree. On yeah, that, I agree. This is why I say I don't think we'll get there because that's not going anywhere. That's not going anywhere. So we have to, if we want to get control of the ship, we have to deal with what we currently have. So as the federation who's just folded its youth league, the first thing they have to do is get control of their states, organizations, and their professional organizations on the men's side, and then fill in the blanks. That's the first thing they're going to have to do. Otherwise, we go back to an even, an even more dog-eat-dog um, -dog environment where now there's no 
top league, it's gone. And we're all fighting even harder than we were before. In, in, in terms of the, the 99%, yeah. let's set aside the 1% of, know, players. of players. Okay. Okay. Um, this last question here. You, you have the 1%. We've talked about them. We've talked about the need for professionalism to lead the way. Uh, it's been that way for over 100 years in the world that, you know, professionalism in soccer is, is the point of the spear. Yeah. You know, I have no issue with that. I agree with that in principle. Again, I have some issues with how we got there here in America. But in principle, around the world, I completely agree with you. The 99% which are paying even at the upper ends of that 99%, a lot of money into the system. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of, um, I've heard countless, you know, sales pitches of why you should do this and why you should go here and why you should do this, et cetera. Um, for everyone else who's not a part of that, how important from a development standpoint, um, an expenses standpoint, participation standpoint for families is the idea of getting back to regionalization and localization for those players. Uh, regionalization and localization is, is, is only really the value of it is then seen on what comes next. So if everybody in the local area was banded together in leagues and organizations and environments at the same states, all playing around, playing each other, not isolated in different leagues, the, it would be easier to spot the ones that go up to the next level because this is your area. The problem is there's no... No crossover. There's, yeah, there's no filtering. Mm -hmm. so a player can be a great player in this local region here of you know 15 miles but might drive 40 miles to train with a team somewhere else in a different environment because that club down there is at loggerheads with this club up here and that club down there has got a better u14 team than this u14 team here but it may have four kids who drive from this area down there and so now we get this again back to the competitive environment of clubs to be at each other's throats and to be able to do whatever they choose to do it, it, it's caused the chaos. It's caused it, Wild West. I mean, I've, I've coached club soccer in Southern California for a long time. And it, it's, I took a break last year to, to go home and to come back into it. It's not any better. It's still chaos. The fees and stuff, the fees and stuff everybody plays, that's for, you know, you're, you're, you're paying coaches. This is a job. You know, at home uh, in England, at grassroots level, you're not really getting paid. Certainly not enough for me to, to live in Southern California. Um, but again, if you're going to talk about 99%, then the real question is, well, with the 99%, what's the agenda? And if you're going to talk about the 99% who are not going to go on to be incredible um, top-level professional athletes, if you're going to talk about the 99%, it's what are we teaching? And that, that then falls on emotional control, intelligence, reactions, 
how we treat other human beings in times of trouble, in times of help, how we react when we're struggling. That's what you're teaching. You're raising young people. You're having an effect in their lives along with their parents and their families. It takes a village. Now, for that, we should be compensated. But also for that, as coaches, we should be educated. I've done the US coaching education system here and I've dabbled in the, in the European coaching education system. I've also gone to school, high school and university in both countries. The education systems are miles apart on what they teach and how they teach. And so now we get into a bigger conversation to talk about the 99% because the 99% is society. The 1% is top athletes. And this is where we lose sight of what we're doing at the youth level because everybody wants to be involved in that 1%. So that 99% and the importance of the teaching in that 99% gets thrown out. And that's why, you know, I, you saw I tweeted when the DA announced, for most of us as a youth coach, nothing should change. If you lose your status, you lose your best players, it doesn't matter. You show up, you put on a session relevant to those players, and they leave better as people and athletes and soccer players than they were when they arrived. That's it. If you get somebody in that 1% in your group, great. If you don't, doesn't matter. You have a 99% of the population that you are responsible for. And we have completely lost sight of that because of the structure, because of the money, because of of our egos, everything has gone completely out the window. And so now we're in the Wild West. And I, I don't see that changing for some time. Not to well, be too depressing. Well, you know, hey, look, you're an Englishman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, thanks for, uh, for, for joining us, for coming on the show and spending some time talking through the aftermath of the DA and the, the, the chaos of the system. Um, I, I, I hope and, and and uh, am a little bit more optimistic about what could happen. Uh, but I, I do hope that eventually some things change. Um, but, you know, in the, in the landscape of everything, I, one of the, the things I just, I want people to understand is, you know, look at all of this with eyes wide open, you know, know what you're walking into. One of the worst things you can do is keep your head down and your eyes closed, your ears closed and just, um, you know, be ignorant to what's around you, the system, the context, the ecosystem, everything that's there, like a, an educated parent is, is a good thing. Uh, if you have a son or a daughter that plays the game, it's good for you to know like what's going on and what your options are and what's available and what's out there. And, and uh, you know, it, you, your child may be in the 1%, they may be in the 99%, but it, you know, getting educated about these things, even if, if I'm not as uh, depressed as Jack is about the whole scenario, I do think it's, I do I'm, think I'm it's depressed worth, about the environment. Not this <laughs> I, I do think it's worth like, you know, taking some time to, to, to educate yourself. So you, you do make better decisions. Um, because there, there are a lot of times where you'll see a kid whose parents are putting them in an environment that's really not the best environment for them is more about their own ego. And it's because they heard from somebody else who heard from somebody else and they never really stopped to think about what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and, and I do think that's part of, um, the, the whole context. And, the, and this is a conversation for another time about 
the idea of burnout in the Aspen Institute has been talking about. I, I do think as adults, we've messed a lot of things up in the youth, youth sports arena. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, um, when, I, when I was growing up, for three months, we didn't have soccer in the summer. So you either went and played on the cricket team or you waited. And it allowed me to miss the game. Right. When training came back, I was so amped to go. You know, in this break in particular, I see all these clubs pushing their content. And I, I, I get it. Um, but, you know, some of these kids go to multiple sports and they're doing their schooling online and they haven't seen their friends or anything. Just... <laughs> let them have a break it's okay right. to have a break even the professionals get a break it's totally right. fine right. Have six weeks off there's nothing wrong with that so hopefully when we do come back to training my kids are excited to come back and you know you get that little zip again so that's, that's breaks are good yeah i agree well jack thanks for joining us appreciate, yeah, it. appreciate it mate you give me a reason to uh shower and brush my hair today so. <laughs> well look that's that's a good enough reason then uh maybe uh maybe maybe those close to you will will let me know if i need to have you on more often <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> well look, stay well stay healthy and say hello to the family for me. all right we'll do man talk soon Thanks. child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching. Thanks to uh, Jack for coming on. Really appreciate him taking some time to talk through a bunch of issues uh, in in and around the the American soccer landscape, the youth soccer landscape. And uh, it was great to uh, be able to spend kind of a, an extended amount of time with Zoom interview to go through a bunch of those issues and topics. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, tomorrow on the show we have. Uh, uh, new Amsterdam Football Club, uh, new club joining NISA. Uh, they'll be on the cl uh, on the show tomorrow, so uh, excited for that. Stay tuned for that at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, as we are always on the air on weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch at danielworkman.com forward slash watch. Thanks for watching. Have a great day. We'll see everybody again tomorrow.